Hey, if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter two is where we're gonna be this morning. I wanna invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter two. My name's Dave, and uh, so, so glad you're here. If this is your first time here, you know, you, you got to be a part of just a, a really sweet family moment as we are sending off some of our beloved family members, one of our pastors, uh, and just that's the joy and the sorrow of living into what God's called us to do. The, the joy of receiving, the joy of sending, all of that uh, is, is such a gift, and I'm glad you got to be here for that this morning. We're in the, we're in the second uh, week of Advent, and it, it's been such an interesting week as I just think about um, all that's gone on. You know, Aaron and I have been friends since middle school before we were following Jesus. Never in a million years did I think God would bring our lives back together and we'd get to serve for almost the last decade in this capacity, which has been just such a gift. But it's the last couple of weeks in particular, it has felt like one long, slow ripping of the Band-Aid off. You know, it's like this been this long goodbye. And so on Wednesday, we had this moment where uh, Aaron and Amy and their kids came up to the office and the staff was just just praying for them and speaking words of life and getting ready to send them off. And on Wednesday afternoon, they actually left Nashville, got out of the house, um, went to Chattanooga where they're spending the, the last 10 or so days they have here in the States before they head to the Middle East. And so on Wednesday afternoon, they left uh, to go spend time with Aaron's family in Chattanooga. They actually just drove up this morning to be with us and to say goodbye to us tonight. Um, but on Thursday, after we'd had that big emotional goodbye Sydney and I are texting with Aaron and Amy, and we're like, how do, how do you guys feel right now? Like, I mean, all of these goodbyes, all of this stuff, like, how do you feel? And as we were talking back and forth on Thursday morning, I thought they summed up this whole season we're in so well. They said, we were trying to thrive in the midst of this big, weird in-between. Like, we're not where we used to be, and we're also not where we're going to be. We're no longer in our house, we're no longer in Nashville, we're no longer serving in the roles that we've been serving in, and we're also not yet in the Middle East doing what we're gonna do, where we're gonna do it. We don't have our place, like we're in this weird in-between. <laughs> and I was just thinking about that reality because all of us, we've, in every different phase of life, you experience the complexity of the in-between. You know, some of you, you tasted it for the first time when your dad got orders that he was going to move, and so you knew you were leaving one place and you're going to another, and so you knew things weren't as they were, and they're not as they're yet to be, and you're in that in-between. And for some of you, it was when you got out of high school, but you had not yet moved off to college, and that summer in-between where you're going, how do, how do I live in the midst of that in-between spot? Some of you, it was when you got engaged, and you're like, okay, uh, I'm not not married yet, we're not just dating, we're not married, we're in that in-between. Some of you, like this morning, you're sitting next to somebody and, and you're like, we're not friends and I don't know if we're dating because I haven't asked her to be my girlfriend yet. We're, we're in that in-between. Just ask her, dude, just ask her. Like right now in the sermon, life's short, ask her. It's the in-between. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, is sometimes the most challenging place to thrive in life is that in between, when you're not where you used to be and you're not where you're gonna be. It's not what it was and it's not what it will be. You're just kind of in the midst of the middle. And I was thinking about that uh, on Thursday as we were talking with Aaron and Amy because every year as a church, you know, we stop in December with Christians all across the world for the season of Advent and amidst everything that's happening in the world, we try to stop and remind ourselves that we're literally a people that are living in the in-between. 
that, that our lives are marked by this reality that the world is different because of the first advent of Jesus, that Jesus came into the world, his, his, he arrived on the scene once. And this other reality that we believe he's gonna come on the scene again, that he's gonna come back, but this time not as a baby born to a virgin, but as a conquering, ruling, powerful king. And so as human beings, we are literally, the entirety of our lives is living in the tension of life in the in-between. And the truth is, if you are not careful, you will get lulled to sleep by the complexity of life that's found in the midst of waiting. And so every year, we, we just stop and we go, hey, God, would you show us not how to survive this in-between space, but how to thrive as wholehearted disciples of Jesus who celebrate when we send people off, who cry when we send people off, because we're living in the complexity and the beauty of life as it is in the middle. And so we come back every year and we just stop and go, Lord, teach us. And this is what I want us to wrestle with this morning is, is what does it look like to live wholeheartedly, to live well in light of the fact that Jesus came and in light of the fact that we believe he's gonna come again and that should impact the way that we live right here and right now. And this morning, I wanna just look at this one moment out of uh, the, the story that surrounds the first arrival of Jesus to give us some context for how we face the soon arriving of Jesus in the future. And we're just gonna do that out of Matthew chapter two, this, this story of the wise men entering into Jerusalem. But before we open up the text, I want to just give you some real quick context for the first arrival of Jesus because I think it shapes the way that we wait on his second coming. And so I just I want to go through this really quickly. But the first arrival of Jesus, the world was marked by these three beautiful things. And the first thing was that it was marked by a moment where the world was more socially connected than it had been for several thousand years preceding. So the moment that Jesus entered into 2,000 years ago was a moment in which the world was more socially connected than it had been since the days of the Tower of Babel. The, the Greeks had conquered most of the developed world a few hundred years before Jesus was born, and they gave the world a common language. So for the first time since the Tower of Babel, most of the developed world could speak or at least understand a similar language. So people started communicating in ways they hadn't done in a long time. They're socially connected by language, they're socially connected by the roads and the commerce system that the Romans would give a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born. And so this world that he entered into was number one, it was socially connected, but it was not just socially connected, it was politically divided. And so for the 600 years preceding the birth of Jesus, it was just a changing of the guards. You had the Assyrian Empire, and then you had the Babylonian Empire, then you had the Persian Empire, and then you had the Greeks, and then you had the Romans. It was just this great changing of the guards. And so not only was the world socially connected, but they were politically divided. Don't you wish the Bible felt relevant to our moment? <laughs> socially connected, politically divided. They were religiously polarized. And so there's this moment where all of these connections and these people, there was this pluralistic society, pagan worldview, secular worship, multi-gods in the Roman Empire. There were, even amongst the people of God, there were these four distinct groups that were emerging on the scene. You had the Pharisees that were 
uh, spiritually conservative. They wanted to keep the word of God so much that the way they went about it sometimes felt legalistic and oppressive to people. You had the Pharisees that were conservative. You had the Sadducees that had kind of thrown out the word of God, but they wanted to be relevant and loving to the culture around them, so they were the progressives. You had the Essenes who were the monks that just said, hey, forget all of it. We're going to get outside of the city and just get away from it all. You had the Zealots who seemed a little bit Christian on the surface, but they were nationalist at heart. And this is the world. I just want you to see, this is the context of the first advent of Jesus. The world socially connected, politically divided, religiously polarized, and the world was like this tinderbox where everybody was just trying not to step on somebody else's feelings, step on the eggshells, whatever the, the metaphor is that you want to use. They were just trying to live in their lane going, how do we get through this together? And there was this cry of the heart of people during those days going, okay, someone's got to come fix the mess that we're in. And I just love this moment right before the birth of Jesus because I believe it is just a snapshot of what the world is going to experience before Jesus returns again as king. That there is going to be this thing that's bubbling up in the lives of people all across the world. I think it's the cry of the heart that you see in the world right now where people are looking at the religious mess and the political mess and more socially connected than we've ever been and people are going, okay, who is going to come and fix this? That's the cry of the in-between heart. And it's into this that Jesus goes, now's the time. <laughs> and so he's, he's born into the midst of this moment 2,000 years ago to an unwed virgin woman named Mary and her soon-to-be husband, Joseph, in this small one-stop-like town of Bethlehem. Not in a nice hospital, not with a good insurance plan. They're born into the lowest of the low, into the weakest of the weak. And this is the place that God chooses to come in. And I love this moment in Matthew chapter two where we're gonna look this morning because this story picks up. We don't know if it's a few days or a few weeks or a few months after the birth of Jesus, but it picks up on the other side of Jesus being born. And I want us, as we go through the story this morning, to look at the brilliance of God's plan across human history as he chases down the human heart. And then I want us to just kind of stop and wrestle with what is our response to the brilliance of God in the midst of this, because the more we see it, the more we understand it, the better we can wait and thrive in the middle. So Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one. Are you guys with me this morning? You guys doing okay? Okay, Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the region of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, came to Jerusalem. Now, there's so much in that one sentence. I want to just kind of stop, and I want to highlight a few quick things for you. So we get this picture, this story that's unfolding of, of Jesus being born. This is not the night of his birth, no matter what the movies tell you or the nativity scene on your front yard tells you. The, the, the wise men don't show up at the barn. They show up at the house where, where Jesus was staying as a young baby. And it says that here Jesus, the Son of God, born in these meager circumstances, is in this house. But I love it zooms out a little bit and gives us the, the geopolitical context of Jesus' life. It says he's living in the region of Judea under the reign of this guy named King Herod. Now, I don't know if you know much about King Herod, but whatever you think about our current politicians, King Herod was a nightmare to the hundredth degree. 
He was far more politically savvy than most of the men that led during his time, and he was, even by the standards of his day, violent and ruthlessly evil in ways that the people of his time didn't know what to do with. So um, Herod was not bad news because he got online and tweeted things. Like, that was not the thing that got people upset. Herod was a big deal. What, sorry, was, are we not allowed to say that? Is that too sensitive? Like, everybody kind of looked at me like, if that's the most offensive thing you hear, um, uh, buckle up. Um, <laughs> Herod, Herod killed his, his own children, his own wife, his own cabinet members in his political party just because he wanted to keep power. This is who he was. And we just read over that sentence. Jesus, son of God, born in Bethlehem under the reign of this crazy man. And it says, under the reign of King Herod, keep going, look back at verse one. It says, magi from the east come onto the scene. Now, um, a lot of times we just think about, you know, these guys in funny robes on camels. I don't know why we always picture them on camels, but here they come riding in. And it, this is the story that we picture, but you've got to understand who the Magi were. Magi were, they were part political pundits. Uh, so in their context in Persia and Babylon, they would have been like senators in their world. They were, they were politicians. Um, they were not just politicians. They were pagan theologians, pagan priests. They would literally read the stars, look at the signs in the heavens, and their job was to determine who the next kings would be based on what they were seeing in the heavens. And so they were part politician. They were part kind of this divine council for the country that they were in. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the Magi's job was they were the kingmakers, they would come into a region, they had come into a city, and they would literally appoint kings. They'd lay hands on a king and say, hey, you are the next king. And in fact, in the literature of their day, someone was not considered to be a king in the Eastern Empire unless the Magi had shown up and had appointed them. And so let's go back and read verse one together. I want you to just feel the tension of verse one. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, under the time of King Herod, this crazy man, Magi from the East, these politicians, these religious leaders of the pagan order, these king makers roll into Jerusalem, verse two, and they ask the question, where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And so I just want you to think about this, that these guys didn't come in casually. They rolled in deep. It probably wasn't just three of them. It was probably a whole entourage. In our day, they would come in with armored guard in the escalades. They roll into town. They get out. They start asking questions. Hey, where's the new king been born? Now, if the current king that's sitting on the throne has made a habit of murdering people that has threatened his power, what do you think the city begins to feel like when in the midst of this political nightmare, this entourage from this foreign country 1,400 miles away rolls up asking, where's the next king? This is the scene, verse three. And so when King Herod heard this, he was what? Somebody shouted out. He was and all of Jerusalem with him. Can you blame them? Because they knew that so went the king's heart, so went their life, verse four. He's politically savvy. He doesn't lose his cool. So King Herod, verse four, calls together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law. These were the pastors of the day, the theologians of the day. He calls them together. He says, where's the Messiah to be born? He knew that their scriptures, the Old Testament, had told them what the first coming and the second coming of the king were gonna look like. He knew this was gonna happen. So he said, hey, where is this king to be born? And so they open up the, the scriptures, verse five. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So these religious leaders are sitting there talking to Herod. He's worried that he's about to lose power. He says, where is this king to be born? They open up the Bible to Micah chapter five, verse two, and read what, what it is that we just read. It said in Bethlehem, and this is another sermon for another day, but I want you to notice that these guys, they knew the word of God, but they had no idea what God was doing in the world. And it's a dangerous thing to know the word of God and not know what's happening in the world. And they were unaware of the times they were living in. Verse seven. So then Herod called the Magi secretly and he found out the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, I just want to point out the obvious. It's kind of my job here, but I want you to notice that Herod does what all politicians do, and he fudges the truth just a little bit. He wasn't interested in worshiping Jesus. He was interested in keeping power. In fact, you get into the next part of the story, and he's going to send a delegation of soldiers to Bethlehem to try to have Jesus killed. Verse 9, and after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen, when it uh, when it rose, it went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, this is a supernatural reality, not just a normal star. When they saw this supernatural reality, they were overjoyed. So on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped Jesus. I just want you to imagine this scene, these foreign dignitaries, this, this royal procession of politicians and pagan theologians They've shown up in their Escalades or their camels or their horses or their chariots or whatever it is. They roll into this small little town of Bethlehem, small little house, probably in the ghetto. They, they get out and they, 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 they get off their horses. They get out of their chariots and they come in. And I want you to notice what they do. They opened their treasures. They bowed down and they worshiped him. And they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Just picture this scene, guys what it would be like to be Mary and Joseph. The door opens, there's all of these political leaders from 1,400 miles away, and they don't say a word, they just get down on their face and they begin worshiping your baby. <laughs> See, this problem, this problem being in Nashville, you've heard this story so much, I've heard this story so much, it's just kind of like, I want you to think about the scandal, the tension, the reality of what it is that we claim to be living into this morning. Verse 12, and after all of this had happened, being, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, so much, so much we could unpack this morning. Just very quickly, here's what I wanna do. I want us to just stop, and I want us to recognize the brilliance of God's plan in the, in the centuries-long pursuit that he had had after these guys. And I just want to kind of stop and I want to see the brilliance of his plan and then I want us to wrestle with the responses of people to the brilliance of God's plan. Now, here's what I mean about the brilliance of God's plan. Here you have these, these magi who had not grown up in front and center in the middle of the story of God, at least from our perspective. But around the birth of Jesus, they're one of the first ones to recognize Jesus for who he really is. And here's what I love about this moment in Matthew chapter two, is you realize this moment in Matthew chapter two, at the very least, had been 1,300 years in the making. For 1,300 years, I would say it had eternity in the making. 
But at least from the, the human perspective, this moment, God pursuing these magi had been at least 1,300 years in the making. And here's what I mean by this. 1,300 years earlier, in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, God speaks to this magi, this man from the same ruling class of these guys that show up here at the birth story of Jesus. 1,300 years earlier, God speaks to this magi named Balaam. Really weird story. You need to go back and read it later today. But Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, God speaks 1,300 years before the birth of Jesus to this guy named Balaam and gives Balaam a prophecy about the first and the second coming of Jesus that would be marked by the appearance of a star in the heavens. And so this just astounds me when I go, man, how much does God love these magi? Well, 1,300 years earlier, he raised up a messenger that they can trust. Have you ever noticed in your own life how you tend to pay more attention to people that you trust? People that look like you, think like you, act like you, come from the same story that you did. I love this. Jesus, in his brilliance, 1,300 years before they even knew what was happening, he goes, I'm gonna raise up a messenger you can trust. But he doesn't just raise up a messenger. 600 years after that moment in Numbers 24, he's gonna raise up a trusted mentor in the life of Daniel. And so now you, you fast forward from that moment in Numbers 24 to the book of Daniel, which is 600 years before the birth of Jesus. So I want you to just see the drama of God, the brilliance of God unfolding in their lives. In the book of Daniel, there's this wicked man named Nebuchadnezzar who was the ruler of Babylon, and one night he has a bad dream. And so he calls in, maybe you can guess, he calls in all the magi of his day. And he says, can you interpret the dream? And the magi in the book of Daniel couldn't interpret the dream, and so Nebuchadnezzar decides he's gonna have all of the magi killed. And so God uses this man named Daniel, another sermon for another day, but he uses this man named Daniel who was basically a political prisoner in exile living in Babylon, God raises Daniel up to give a faithful interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He comes in and gives this faithful interpretation and Nebuchadnezzar goes, okay, because of this interpretation, because of this gift, I'm not gonna kill the Magi and I'm gonna put you in charge of them as their mentor. And so Daniel, this man of God, living in exile, is put in this place of great influence over these pagan priests, these pagan theologians, these politicians, these kingmakers. It started 1,300 years before the birth of Jesus with Balaam, this trusted messenger, and then there's this trusted mentor in Daniel, and then you come to the moment leading up to the birth of Jesus where this star begins to appear in the sky that gets their attention, and there's so much we can talk about the star, but here's what I want you to notice, is that Jesus meets them on their terms, speaks to them in a language they can understand. And isn't it just like the grace and the brilliance of God to take something that these guys were obsessed with, the stars, and to say, hey, I'm gonna take this thing you're obsessed with and I'm gonna speak straight to your heart. 1,300 years. I'm gonna raise up a messenger you can hear. I'm gonna raise up a man that will mentor your people so you'll be ready for the moment when it comes. I'm gonna use a method like a supernatural phenomenon in the heavenlies to get your attention. And I'm gonna do all of this so that you would know the God of the universe has been knocking on the door of your heart so that he can come all the way in. Guys, I just want you to think for a second. We could stop here for the rest of the day. I want you to think about how crazy it is that you are sitting in a bar in downtown Nashville in this moment, listening to the scriptures being proclaimed, think about how many thousands of miracles had to happen for you to come to this place. Every little moment that you were sitting, think about this, 
We are sitting in the middle of an eternal setup. (laughs) That God has been pursuing you throughout the ages in so many ways, most of which you are totally oblivious to, most of which I'm totally oblivious to. And there's this moment where, where these magi, these guys from the middle of nowhere, realize that they are front and center to the plans and the purposes and the love of God in their life. And I wonder what would have happened in their hearts when that revelation went off. I remember earlier this spring, I was speaking at a conference and this guy comes up who had just become a follower of Jesus. He is from Indiana. And I said, man, he's just on fire for the Lord. I said, tell me how you became a follower of Jesus. And he, he tells me about the church he goes to, which is actually was started by one of my good friends, just a great guy. So I got excited. I was listening in even more. And he's telling me about how he got uh, a part of this church. I said, how'd you become a follower of Jesus? He said, I got saved through their WTF ministry. And I, I got lots of questions. I only know one thing that that stands for. Um, but I'm like, I gotta ask, like, what is the WTF ministry? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. He's like, the Wrestling Theology Fellowship Ministry. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Um, really needs new branding. Um, you can't tell me no one in the communications department did not catch that. Like, somebody put that on the website, they were laughing the whole time, you know, but I'm like, what's the Wrestling Theology Fellowship? He said, it, there's this guy in our city that is really big into backyard wrestling, and in his backyard, he would set up this huge ring and people would wrestle, jumping off the roof, breaking tables, breaking legs. He's like, it was insane, it was amazing. Uh, I loved it, he said, it was really well done, whatever that means. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, there'd be this huge wrestling um, thing and then this guy who owned the house and owned this place where it all went down, he would get up every week about halfway through the matches and he would just share his testimony about Jesus. And then afterwards, we could stick around in fellowship and eat food, whoever wanted to do that. And he said, I started showing up at this wrestling theology fellowship night. And he said, I used to think the testimony time was so stupid. And he said, and then all of a sudden one night this guy shares and he said, I don't know how to explain it, but the spirit of God just grabbed a hold of my heart through the gospel. And I went, man, isn't that just like the Lord? (laughs) I'm like, eternity in the making. God works through guys like Balaam and guys like Daniel and stars in the heaven and he works through backyard wrestling and he works through CrossFit and he works through that book club at your work and he works through that random guy that got transferred to your family's hometown when you were 13 and shared the gospel. Guys, I just want you to think about the brilliance of Jesus. Guys, just look around the room real quick. Just, I know it feels forced because I'm asking you to do it. Just look around the room real quick. Guys, do you realize nobody got here with Jesus out of their own wisdom, strength, brilliance, or goodness? It was just God's radical pursuit. It was his incredible plan. And I look at this story in Matthew chapter 2, and I go, man, the light bulbs begin to go off. Look at what God had been doing. And there's going to be this moment when Jesus returns. I'm just telling you. When Jesus returns, you're gonna see him, and there's gonna be so many thoughts that are gonna go through your mind, but one of the thoughts I promise you that's gonna go through your mind is, whoa, your plan is more brilliant than I ever understood. And you have been working across human history to chase down guys like me, and it makes no sense. You're living in a miracle. We try to stop this time of year and to go, whoa, we're living in this great big story, and when you realize you're living in that brilliant story, it changes the way you live in the in-between. 
But here's what's so crazy to me. When you, when you look at the brilliance of what Jesus did, there are all of these responses in Matthew chapter two to his brilliance. And I just wanna hit these very quickly because I'm just telling you, there, there are some of these responses in every single one of us. And the first is this, you have guys like Herod, you have gals who are functioning like Herod, who when they see the brilliance of God, they are threatened by the claims of Jesus. They're threatened by Jesus. Here's the reality, is when those wise men showed up in Jerusalem asking where is the soon to be king, it is a threat to the one who is currently sitting on the throne as king. And I say this with all the love and gentleness in my heart, guys, listen, Jesus is not just a cosmic cheerleader. He's not your counselor. He's not just your best buddy or friend. He comes as a reigning Lord and King. And this is offensive. This is challenging, especially when I come to grips with the fact that I really want to sit as King over my own life. This is one thing that just struck me this week as I was reading this story is sometimes the Bible is like a window that you look through. You look through the window and you see this world of scripture and you go, oh man, I can't believe Herod did that. But a lot of times when I'm honest, the Bible is not a window, it's a mirror. And I look at it and all of a sudden I just went, man, there's a whole lot of Herod still in me. Because the reality is the cry of every human heart on some level, this is true of every one of us, if we would get really honest, the cry of every human heart on some level is this cry that says, nobody has the right to tell me what to do with my life. That's the cry of the human heart. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. And this manifests in all sorts of ways. No, nobody has the right to tell me where I should live or what I should do with my work or my time or my money. Nobody has the time. No, nobody has the right to tell me who I can have sex with or who I can't have sex with or what I should do. Like nobody has the right. And there's just this thing in us as humans. It's in our heart. We, we live in a world that tries to hide it. You've gotten, we've all gotten so good at trying to hide that, that compulsion in us. But in every one of us, there's that compulsion that just goes, I want to be king. I remember experiencing this profoundly right after Sydney and I got married. I did not realize how badly I wanted to be king until a queen moved into the house. <laughs> and I remember like, you know, we get our first house together, we come back from the honeymoon, we're unpacking the kitchen and we'd been getting all these plates for our, our wedding and Sydney's putting them in one of the cabinets. And I remember, this sounds so stupid, like 98% of the big fights that Sydney and, I, Sydney and I have are about the dumbest things on planet Earth. Like, we're like, how did we get in a knockdown drag out over that? But um, she's putting plates uh, in, in the cabinet for the first time. And this thing rises up in my heart where I'm like, well, who is she that she gets to choose where the plates go? <laughs> and because I'm a man and an absolute coward, I didn't say that out loud. Um, but I went and got the plates behind her. And I kid you not, I moved them like three sections over and put them in a different part. <laughs> and she goes, what are you doing? The plates don't go there. And I'm just telling you, everything in me just, <laughs> what if we want to put the plates in the bathroom? What if we want to put, you know, who are you to decide where plates go? And, and that, that impulse, that impulse to be king just reared its head. Guys, here's one of the things you have to wrestle with if you are really wrestling with the Christmas story, the Advent story, is if Jesus was not just a good guy, but was actually God in a manger, then you must forfeit the right to be the king of your life. That's it. And man, that is a hard thing to do. And sometimes that reality comes, and like Herod, we want to resist, we're threatened by it. 
I think even a scarier response is not just to be threatened by Jesus. Secondly, are the religious leaders who were just indifferent to Jesus. It's stunning to me. These guys had been studying the scriptures for all of these years. They knew exactly where the Messiah was to be born, but when he was born, they were not even curious enough to make the six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see if it had happened. They were just indifferent. They are apathetic. Guys, I'm convinced that this is the, the plight of our day in our nation, in our city, even for many of us in this church. Guys, I just love you. I'm just telling you, some of you, you're not threatened by Jesus like Herod. You're just totally indifferent to him. And that is far scarier than being threatened by him. Some of you, if you were really honest, you'd go, man, my faith with the Lord is just lukewarm. And you are lukewarm and you are loving it. You want just a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Christmas, a little bit of goodness, a little bit of blessing. And I'm just telling you, Jesus has no interest in just a portion of your heart. He wants the whole thing. And it's a scary thing to come face to face with glory and to be bored by it. And there's some of you, you're just really honest. You're just kind of bored with the the whole Jesus thing. And I just want to encourage you, don't fly past that. I remember when I was in college, there's this season where all of my friends every year would go on these mission trips and, and every year they'd ask me, hey, do you want to come be a part of this? And And the the truth is, I knew that God was at work in profound ways in all of the places where my friends were going, but every year I refused to go, not because I didn't think God was at work, but because I just wanted to do something different. And I was just so apathetic, and I was so indifferent, I didn't even know it. And you have Jesus, he shows up in his brilliance, he's been pursuing these guys, Herod is threatened, the religious leaders are lukewarm and loving it, they're just indifferent. And then you have these guys that nobody expected hardly anything from, these religious, pagan, political leaders, these kingmakers, and they show up and their response is they're just absolutely in awe of Jesus. They're just in awe of Jesus. And man, I wish we had a lot of time to unpack this, but I just, I just wanna just give you a couple of quick things about this. What does it look like to be in awe of Jesus as you find yourself in the midst of the waiting To be in awe of Jesus means you learn how to watch for him expectantly. These guys have been doing what Karl Barth talked about. In one hand, they had the Bible. In the other hand, they had the newspaper. They had one eye on the word of God, one eye in the world. They were reading the prophecies. They were looking at the signs of the times. They were watching for God to move with expectancy in their midst. One of the ways that we learn how to live in awe, how to thrive in the midst of this in-between is we become men and women that wait upon the Lord, watching for the Lord with expectancy. We don't just watch with expectancy. We learn how to wait on him actively. It's crazy to me, these these guys, it would have taken them 40 days in one direction to just come and see if it was actually the Messiah that had been born. 40 days, just imagine them going to their wives saying, hey, we're taking a guy's trip. Are you guys going fishing for the weekend? No, (laughs) we're gonna be gone for at least three months because we think this star that we've seen might point to the one we've been waiting for. How hungry do you have to be? How long must you have been waiting for God to show up and to fix your mess for you to be willing to move like that? See, when we watch for the Lord with expectancy, when we wait on him actively, we don't sit back passively. We go, hey, Lord, wherever we see you, we're gonna move toward it. We're gonna move toward you. They were watching. They were waiting. Last but not least, 
to live in awe of the Lord. They worshiped wholeheartedly. Guys, I think a lot of times, like in our culture, when we think about worship, we, I hate this. It gets so watered down. We think about a, a genre of music or we think about that 20 minutes that we do before a sermon and all of that can be worship. I say this with so much grace and love, guys. Worship is not you standing in a room and casually mumbling words that somebody else wrote for you. That's not worship. Worship is a posture of the heart. Worship is a heart that is obsessed with, captured by, in awe of, joyfully surrendering to one who is greater than you. Worship is what springs up in the place that no one can see and it's poured out in the place that everyone can see. And here there's this moment of worship where the magi show up. And there's no songs, there's no band, there's no order. They fall down, they empty themselves, and you see them worshiping in spirit and in truth here. I love this. It says they give gifts of gold. That's what you gave to a king. They come with frankincense. Leviticus 2 verse 2 tells us that's the scent that you burn in the temple to recognize someone's holiness and righteousness. And so it was a gift that you gave to God. And then myrrh was what what Nicodemus and Joseph put on Jesus right after he died in John chapter 19. They anointed his body with myrrh. And so these guys that that grew up way away from the action, that grew up way away from the things of God, that didn't grow up in a church, he had pursued them in his brilliance for 1,300 years. And then they show up watching, waiting, wholeheartedly worshiping, and they empty their lives. And what you recognize is they know that Jesus was not just a baby or a prophet or a good guy, but that he, in fact, was the king. He, in fact, was God. And he, in fact, had come to die for the sins of the world. And in this moment where the brilliance of the Lord is on full display, some were threatened, some were indifferent, some were put on their face and all. And I just go, guys, in the midst of the season we find ourselves in, how is your heart actually responding to the real Jesus? Christmas is the only holy day that is also a major secular holiday. It's the only moment every year where billions of people are literally celebrating something by the same name that comes from very different roots and purposes. And there's this incredible opportunity. I just want to challenge you guys. Do not sleep through this season. There's this incredible opportunity for you to not only get your life right with Jesus, but for your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members to look them in the eye and to say, do you see how long the love of God has been chasing you down? It's an incredible opportunity as you're shopping at Green Hills Mall last minute and you're with your buddy who doesn't know the Lord and you hear Justin Bieber singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing over the intercom like, you go, hey, do you know the gospel? (laughs) (laughs) If God can speak through backyard wrestling and through Magi and Star, man, goodness knows he can use a moment in the mall. So many opportunities. Guys, don't fall asleep. Don't sleep through the season. In the same way, guys, the story of Christmas, it is a double-edged reality. It's not just an opportunity. There's an incredible threat to your soul, and you've got to know this. And here's the threat to your soul, is that you will get just enough of Jesus this Christmas season to be inoculated to the power of his life. You'll get just enough of the Christmas sentiment to think that you've had him as king. You'll get just enough of the story, just enough of the worship, just enough. And Guys, I just want to challenge you to just sit in the brilliance of his plan this morning and to go, Lord, what are you doing in my heart? And how can I worship you? And so I just want to invite you, let's stand together. We're going to end. We're going to end by receiving communion.
and we're gonna sing a song or two. There's gonna be men and women at the respond banner. But I just invite you to just close your eyes with me. I'm just gonna pray a simple prayer over us. And after I've prayed, I invite you to the tables to receive the bread and to receive the cup and to just sit with the people that you've come with and to reflect on the brilliance of God's love that he would chase you across eternal history to bring you to this point this morning. And that over communion, that you would do business with God and that you'd ask the questions of the heart, that you'd receive prayer that we'd fall on our faces in awe. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your incredible, cosmic, eternal plan for the human story. God, thank you in the midst of our social connection and our politically and religiously divided moments that you are entering into the story again, and we believe that you're coming again. And so, God, would you just stir up a heart cry across this church, across this city, across the nation, across the nations, would you stir up the the cry of our hearts where we go, Lord, the hope for the world does not come from our politicians. The hope for the world does not come from our strength or our strategies. The hope for this world comes from beyond this world. It comes from heaven. And then just as the world was in waiting for the first arrival, Lord, would you stir up a hunger for waiting? Would you stir up a discontentment for what is and a longing for what only will will be made right when Jesus returns again? Lord, would you help us in this season not to waste the waiting? Help us not to waste the opportunities this season to point our friends and family members and neighbors to the reality of your great plan and your design. God, help us not to waste the season of what you've been doing in our hearts. And God, would you turn up the fire of the gospel in us and upon us so we don't miss what it is that we may learn to thrive in the midst of this in-between. So in the name of Jesus, we pray and give thanks. Amen. Hey, I love you. This is going to be ministry time. Let's come and receive the bread. Let's receive the cup. Let's minister to each other. Men and women over there that would love to minister to you. We're going to sing a song or two to, to wrap us up. But let's receive communion together. I love you guys. Merry Christmas.